This podcast is being recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to elders past and present and acknowledge their ongoing connection to land, waters and culture. Colonization and genocide are ongoing processes that continue to this day. Sovereignty was never ceded. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Hey everybody, and welcome back to Ozpol Snackpod, the podcast where normally two of Australia's foremost political nobodies would be bringing you bite-sized chunks of news, politics, and memes. But this week, we're actually taking a week off. Zach has some work, and uh, I have been deeply disturbed by the change in daylight saving, so I'm, I'm you know, retreating to a blackened cave for a few days to try and reset my circadian rhythm. Uh, so we'll be back uh, as normal next week with our regular show, but this week we're going to play a bonus episode for you. Um, this is one we did a couple of months ago about Bob Hawke being an informant for the US government. Um, Zach did a bunch of research into that, um, especially drawing on the work of a historian named Cam Coventry. Um, and uh, Zach wanted me to just mention, Cam, if you're listening, uh, we're sorry if we uh, conjectured about your feelings and opinions too much. Please feel free to send us a, an angry recording of yourself telling us uh, to pull our heads in. Uh, we would appreciate that a lot. Um, uh, uh, listeners, if you have any potlucks you'd like to send us, you can do it at contact at com. Just record yourself speaking for a minute, email it to us, and we'll play it on the show. Uh, before we get stuck in, I also wanted to shout out our new patrons. We've got two new patrons this week, which is so lovely. So thank you, Lena, and thank you, Ben. And um, uh, for $1 a month, you get access to our Discord, uh, where Lena has already been posting. So thank you for that. Um, and you also get a monthly bonus episode, uh, much like the one that you're about to hear, but on all sorts of different topics. Uh, this month, we just released our uh, episode about dog training, because both Zach and I have uh, difficult, if lovely, uh, hounds, and so we thought we'd share some, some tips and info about that. Um, so yeah, head on over to patreon.com forward slash Snackpod. give us a buck. Uh, and other than that, oh, and uh, please leave us reviews as well, that's a way that you can support the show for zero dollars. Uh, shout out to Lena for doing that, we will read it out next week when we're back to our usual uh, format. So, thanks everybody, um, hope you enjoy this bonus episode about Bob Hawke and uh, some of my favourite well-documented conspiracy theories. Um, and otherwise we'll catch you next week for our regular show. Keep on crunching in the crunch crunch. Snack snack. This week was, uh, Zach heard about something interesting and wanted to talk about that, which is that Bob Hawke was a CIA asset. And that's how Zach framed it to me when he first told me about it. And I was like, cool. And I can interject with other random conspiracy theories. And he was like, no, 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 this isn't a conspiracy theory. It's true. And I said, yeah, so are these ones. Um, but having read about it, I do actually think it's entirely legit. And Zach has done a lot of actual real research and notes. Uh, but he has graciously uh, allowed me a few minutes to interject with some less true conspiracy theories so uh we'll get there when we get there well, we can't say for sure one what, way or the other exactly exactly that's right um so yeah i think we're gonna have a 90 second timer uh i've written about a page and a half of notes for each of these conspiracy theories um and i'm gonna which would typically be like 30 minutes at least 10 minutes <laughs> <laughs> each story. Yeah, yeah, each story. Yeah, yeah. 20 to 30. Yeah. Uh, so we'll, we'll see how that goes. 
Um, I do want to add one thing, which is that I got somewhere between two and three hours sleep last night because uh, I ran out of my meds because I'm very silly and poorly organized. Got enough for tonight. It's fine. Went to the chemist, but I'm operating on, you know, not much. So I just wanted to okay. give everyone I mean, the, the, the bulk. I'll, I'll just throw to you for like deep macroeconomic analysis of the Australian uh, political landscape for the last four to five decades. That's um, but fine. Nothing, yeah, yeah. I said I was tired. Nothing not, stronger you know, than that. You know. I'll be fine. Not pa- I'm not passed out. Okay, <laughs> I'm still an Ospol podcaster. Okay, you still got the uh, yeah, you still got the reflex. Okay, yeah. So yeah, I-, I wanted to talk about this article that was published a little while ago, like a month or two back, um, by this historian by the name of Cameron Coventry, who is a historian at Federation Uni in Ballarat, which fun fact is a university that I had never heard of. Uh, he's a PhD candidate there. I think he's a tutor uh, as well. And I also found out from his, um, you know, his page on the uni website that he used to work for Nick Xenophon, which is hmm. a funny detail, especially considering his apparent political perspective. Yeah, which seems to be like to the left of Bob Hawke, basically, from what I can tell of this article. <laughs> is that about right? Yes, but I would also say that that is a fairly low bar to clear, um, as this, uh, as his piece sort of makes clear. Yeah, the the, yeah. the the article is titled "The Eloquence of Robert J. Hawke, United States Informer, 1973 to 79." So when I said that he was a CIA asset, I may have been, you know, hand a little heavy on the mustard spoon. <laughs> Is that a thing? I know that <laughs> metaphor. We all know the metaphor. Zach. It's a common one in the parlance of our times. Yeah. Um, I sort of, you know, I gooped up the hot dog maybe a little too thick. But it's the the nugget of truth. In, oh boy, I'm really mixing my metaphors. But the, there is a little chicken nuggie of truth in there. Um, so let, let me kick it off here by just reading the abstract. Mm-hmm. That's what it's called, right? The first little yeah. bit yeah. where it describes what the article is about. Mm-hmm. I'm not a really an academic I went to film school, you know, so anyway, but this is how, this is the, what the abstract for, for the article. In the 1970s, the leader of the Australian Council of Trade Unions, ACTU, and future Prime Minister of Australia, Robert J. Bob Hawke, was an informer of the United States of America. Using diplomatic cables from official art- archives, this article shows that Hawke gifted information about the Australian government, the Australian Labour Party, and the Labour movement assisting the intelligence-gathering efforts of the foreign power. In turn, the relationship influenced the development of Australian policy, including the abandonment of Keynesian economics and embrace of neoliberalism. His discrete relationship, discussed in detail for the first time, was not unusual among elites in the post-war period. However, Hawke was especially entrenched in the practice. This article will also show, through historiography and memoir, that the act of informing by elites began in the 1940s, as the United States was becoming Australia's key strategic ally. Yeah, and I guess, you know, when you first told me about this, I was like, well, sure, he was the Prime Minister of Australia, of course he told the United States Mm. stuff, but this article goes into quite a lot of detail about how he was really into giving the US information, like, and that they groomed him for it as well. But also he was yeah, like, oh, yeah, I think I'll tell you secret shit. But the crucial 
thing for me is that this is all before his prime minister. That's so right. these yeah. cables are from between uh, 73 to 79 when he is leader of the ACTU, mm-hmm. the Australian Council of Trade Unions. So, you know, the big boss union that represents all the other unions. Yeah. Well, not all of them, but many of the other unions. Uh, and he's also president of the Labour Party at this point, you know, which is, you know, a powerful position, you know, within the party. But outside you're not actually, Parliament. yeah, exactly, yeah. So that position is currently held by correctly, if I'm correctly correct me if I'm wrong, Wayne Swan. I think that's currently? right. Yeah, yeah. So it's uh, that gives you an idea of you know he was kind of an important Labour guy. These days you don't really hear from him anymore. But that's so it's but you know it's a um, it's a behind the scenes kind of important role. Um, but so you know these uh, you know this evidence and these cables, yeah, from. From the 70s before Bob Hawke is PM, because, yeah, mm-hmm. an Australian prime minister, like, talking to U.S. diplomats, it's not exactly news. Uh, but the leader of the labor movement yeah. enthusiastically volunteering information uh, to U.S. diplomats, that's a different matter. It's more interesting. Um, so, yeah, Bob Hawke, he was, uh, as I say, president of the ACTU from 1969 and... Uh, president of Labour from 1973, and he stepped down from both of those positions to become an MP in 1980, and then was Prime Minister from 83 to 91. But these cables, yeah, as I say, focus on, they're from 73 to 79. Um, And if you're not familiar with the lingo here, cables are just text-based messages sent by diplomats, so they're essentially letters. Like telegrams? Kind of, yeah, you know, they're telegrams, but more seventies than twenties, <laughs> you know. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So these cables are messages that were sent back to you know the U.S. kind of you know uh, intelligence agencies by uh, or back to the U.S. government and agencies by you know United States diplomats in Australia. Right. Okay. Um. So they've or, been talking you know, to who... people in Australia, and then they write home being like, "This is what our conversation was." Exactly. So the stuff in here isn't like direct quotes from Bob Hawke. It's conversations that happened between Hawke and largely it's the U.S. Uh, labor attache, who's mm-hmm. like a mid-level diplomat who, you know, that as the name suggests, kind of their job is to deal with Australian, uh, deal with and understand and stay abreast of Australian labor movement issues. Hawke has discussions with this person. They write them down and they get sent back to the U.S. in the form of mm-hmm. letters. Um, and so that's where the information is coming from. Um, so, you know, before we get into it, like, I guess a couple of the key sort of takeaways from this for me were that, uh, you know, uh, uh, firstly about Hawk on a personal level, mm, you know, I agree. He, the piece. Yeah. So that, which I think is the main thrust. Like if you, if you're releasing, like, you know, if you're going over a trove of documents, which by the way, are publicly available, um, as part of the U S government archives at this point, they're not like WikiLeaks cables or whatever, which we also do have WikiLeaks cables showing (laughs) Australian government officials collaborating with the U S but that's a different, different kettle of fish. Um, but yeah, I mean, this kind of, this article suggests, uh, paints a picture of Bob Hawke as a, you know, a very pragmatic kind of political animal not this sort of staunch working class idealist that I think, you know, many people sort of have this image of him as, you know? Absolutely. Um, Yeah. And, and there were a number of things where it was like, 
well, he initially thought this, and then I told him, uh, why don't you do this other thing? And then he did that for the next eight years. <laughs> yeah, there's some pretty harsh burns from the diplomats writing this stuff being like, I, the only reason I could think that he did this is basically for personal gain, because he doesn't believe in anything. <laughs> yeah, right. I think it's pretty funny. But so there's that, then there's also the kind of, as I mentioned, the uh, macroeconomic mm -hmm. implications, just, you know, by, by which I mean the kind of overarching uh, development of the prevailing economic theories uh, and beliefs of, you know, of Australian history. And that's kind of the shift from Keynesianism to neoliberalism in Australia. Uh, and attendant to that, the fact that Labour and the ACTU were complicit, enthusiastically complicit, in dismantling the power of the union movement in Australia. So that's, you know, Hawke is central to that narrative mm. as well, and this, these cables kind of support that narrative. Uh, and then there's also a kind of slightly less important, but also interesting international politics angle. The idea that uh, Hawke kind of... Uh, massively accelerated the move towards a kind of bipartisan pro-United States position in Australian mm. politics. Mm -hmm. We take this as red these days, but when Hawke was ahead of the ACTU, the relationship between the Australian government under Whitlam and uh, the, I think it was the Nixon government at the time was pretty squirrely. Like, you know, Whitlam as international leaders of Western nations yep. went was, you know, fairly left. As we yeah, know, and the, as we this, this article, um, the eloquence uh, that we're reading, or that you've read and are talking about today, um, does talk about Whitlam sort of having a bad relationship with the US and then improving it, and of Hawke being behind the scenes in that as well, to an extent. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so the relationship that Whit the Whitlam government has with the with the states is is kind of you know Back uh, ambiguous to acrimonious at the beginning of, of his prime ministership in seventy two, and then when he leaves office in uh, or no, he's forced out of office in seventy five. Mm. Uh, that you know uh, the US is is quite is so, sad to see him go. Basically, that's right because yeah, he's yeah. become mm. so kind of sympathetic to their interests, which mm -hmm. is again. In these cables, which is interesting. So those are the kind of three main threads that we're going to follow as we go through here. Sort of talking about Hawke at a, at a personal level as, as a political operator, talking a little bit about the macroeconomic context and narrative, and then touching on the kind of uh, the influence that Hawke had on Australia's uh, position kind of, you know, geopolitically, I mm -hmm. suppose, mm -hmm. in, in international politics. Um, so let's start off here by talking a little bit about Hawke's legacy as it is sort of understood by Labourites, right? And sure. what better avatar for that position than everybody's favourite columnist and commentator, Van Batten. Um, I'm going to read a little bit here from an article that she published in The Guardian just after Hawke died, which mm -hmm. 2019, I think he died? Yeah, it was just before um, the last election. I think that was 2019. Yes, because then Labour lost. Yes, which yes, is very funny. Um, well, here's a quote. Is <laughs> <laughs> yes. it funny? It's sad for it's one of those you know. uh, like Marge. You know, at times like this, all you can do is laugh, and then she just sits there in silence. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. 
Uh, all we have is Lafternoon. On with the show. Here's Van Batten. <laughs> Hawk was as familiar as the men who placed bets and gambled in the TABs and RSLs where my parents worked. Or an uncle at a family barbecue. Wow, the kind so of old Australian. friend my parents might run into at the racetrack. Or in rooms with the smell of ashtrays, mm. the crust of foam left in a beer glass, brill cream combed through hair. Australia. He was the man who showed you could speak like us and live like us, love sport, love beer, go to the track and be union to your core and still be prime minister. Which, um, as Noon, <laughs> Noon said when I first sent him that quote, Oh, can I get uh, no material analysis? Which, like, you know, to be fair, this is a... She's... What, what do you call it? It's like eulogizing. Eulogy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, she's eulogizing the man, you know. Yeah. And talking about the personal connection. Sure. Uh, she, she goes on. Uh, you want to talk a little bit about, okay, material. His political appeal wasn't just that he was a poster boy for working class aspiration. It was that he maintained a commitment over the course of his entire political life to giving other working class people the material opportunity for themselves and their children to aspire. Hawke's collective frameworks were unionism, laborism, and the Labour Party. Which is a position that I think this article and the cables that they reference pretty mm. effectively dismantle. Yeah. Um, the guy that wrote the article might disagree with me to, on that to a certain extent, because yep. he's a historian. And is very uh, is is into the facts, but um, you know yeah. it's our job to take those facts and then wildly speculate. Um, <laughs> Absolutely, you 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 sent me an interview with him, and I I listened to it, and I was like, yeah, again, it's sort of like a bit of a medium thing. And you're like, yeah, he's very staid and won't be drawn. Like you know, he's like, this is how far the evidence goes, and I won't say anything more I than that. Um, and, th th and I go as far as the evidence does, which yeah. is to say exactly to this point and no further. Yeah. Yeah. So, but yeah, you and Isaac, we know happy the truth. To, yeah, exactly. <laughs> happy to far, far outstrip that point to which Cam Coventry is himself willing to go. Yeah. So that interview that you referenced, Noon, is on uh, Floodcast, um, aka Flood Media, which is another lefty commentary podcast if you're not familiar a bunch of greens i think most of them are greens staffers uh living up in uh Mianjin, aka brisbane um and yeah they interviewed the dude and it's quite interesting because like they are pretty keen to draw some conclusions about bob hawk as mm -hmm. a person from these mm -hmm. cables and coventry is like fairly resistant as you say yeah. <laughs> you know, to being drawn um on that kind of stuff uh, but more than happy to um, do that in his stead. Sure. Um, yeah. Uh, now, speaking of the truth, Noon, mm -hmm. you've got 90 seconds on, your, on the clock, and right. your time starts now. Okay, Rendlesham Forest is, in my opinion, one of the most convincing UFO stories. It's sometimes called the British Roswell incident, but in my opinion, it's much more credible than Roswell. It happened in 1980 between Christmas and New Year's at a US military base in Britain in Rendlesham Forest. And I think it's credible because there's a lot of primary evidence available, including a lot of audio recordings taken at the time. People who were witnesses were highly trained military dudes, and they're basically all stone cold sober, which is important to mention in UFO related stories. And also given that it literally happened not only around Christmas, but at a Christmas party that night. Um, so there's also really strong evidence, some kind of cover up. No, really, 
it's not an exaggeration. Uh, and that said, I think the most likely explanation is something like it was the Russians or maybe even the British or U- US testing some kind of stealth helicopter. So what happened? Some military dudes, they're out in patrol, saw some weird lights. They called in a plane cl- crash. Head of the base goes out. He and his sergeant, they lose 45 minutes, like in movies. Uh, their watches are 45 minutes early. They lose radio contact. Uh, but they think they were there for like a couple of minutes. They were walking towards these lights at ground level and then the air changed and they can't walk properly and they're like, it's goopy. Uh, but, you know, also maybe if there was a helicopter nearby blowing air, you wouldn't be able to walk very fast. Anyway, they see, they get close to this troll, small triangular metal craft, a couple of meters on each side, resting on three legs, weird lights on it. And this guy, Peniston, comes up, sketches some of the weird symbols on the side of it. And I've got a diagram here that I'd show you, but I'm running out of time. They get back to the base and everyone makes fun of them all night. And the next day, a colonel rocks up and is like, well, this is all clearly bullshit. And he has a tape recorder and he goes out that night at the Christmas party, tape recorder. And he goes out and he records himself for five hours investigating stuff. Why are there only a few minutes the audio footage released? Zach, why are there only a few minutes? And I'm done. That's 90 seconds. That is 90 seconds. Well done. Okay. That was two-thirds of my notes. So, you know. You, you did pretty well. It shows how either how slowly we usually talk or how much shit we usually talk. Mm-hmm. Or probably a combination of the both, mm-hmm. I guess. Um, yeah, Noon banned me from uh, interjecting and taking up any of his 90 seconds, which is fair. Which is fair, considering that I imposed the time limit on him in the first place. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that's a fair response. Um, All right, back to the uh, that, real actual thanks truth. For, yeah, thanks for the uh, that conspiracy break number one. Yeah, stay tuned for conspiracy break number two later. After we do a little bit of macroeconomic analysis. Okay, so um, a little bit of I, I guess con- and, and, and let me um. I've written this later in my notes, but I'm going to say it now, mm-hmm. which is in all caps, I am not an economist. And I would say that in general, my like understanding of economics and Australian political history is kind of being built backwards as uh, time goes on, you know, looking around now and being like, huh, things seem fucked and bad. Why is this? Mm-hmm. And then you know, you're like, oh, look, Tony he... Abbott was there. Oh, well, that that was terrible. <laughs> how the how did he get in? Wait, more specifically, like, oh, the Labour Party seems to suck. I can look at what they're doing and disagree with that. But how far back does this go? And realizing, mm-hmm. like, you know, oh, there's been capitulation to the right for a long time. Blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. And then going back even further, like, oh, okay, it seems like this really started in the uh, 80s or the 70s and then oh actually look lennon wrote this article <laughs> about how shit the labor party was back i didn't fucking i don't even know yeah. what 1917 there you go something like that so yeah uh, when did lennon die uh 23 i'm pretty sure there you go okay so let's let's call it in yeah you know early 20th century anyway goes back a while i am in the process of learning a bit more about uh you know, labor in this, in Australia in the 70s and 80s. So probably my analysis here is not going to be the deepest uh, and, you know, most nuanced of all time and always happy to take notes. So hit us up on the Discord uh, if there's anything you want to add. But here we go. So we talk a little bit about what the State of the Union movement in Australia was like in the 70s. So basically it was uh, at its peak. Possibly, you know, the, the you know at the at the most powerful it has ever been in Australian history, uh, and Coventry himself in, in that interview on Floodcast characterizes the seventies as 
representing as having basically the greatest equality that Australia has ever seen. And obviously there are going to be caveats on that when you're talking about, you know, gender equality or first nations people, for example, but you know, economically speaking in a broad sense, the union movement achieved the best level of economic equality that Australia has had. Um, And the union movement is kind of so powerful, you know, in the late seventies that the ACTU and Hawke as its head are kind of regarded as the de facto opposition to mm. liberal Fraser government as opposed to the Labour Party itself. So that gives you an idea of like how powerful Hawke himself is as well at the time. Um, now, Coventry kind of describes in the article how at this point in time the US sees Bob Hawke as a moderating influence mm. on the Labour movement. So the labor movement is very strong. They're getting really, they're getting uh, wage increases. They're striking. In uh, union density is really high. It's a really powerful force for social change. And Bob Hawke is at the top of it there, and the U.S. is looking at him, being like, "Hmm, I like how he's reining in these unions." Mm. That's their opinion on him. So one example of that is. Uh, the Labour Party's position on uranium mining. So there was basically broad community support for banning uranium mining Mm -hmm. and support within the Labour Party as well. And they had kind of like a strong policy position opposing uh, opposing uranium mining. Uh, But then here's a quote from Coventry's article. Hawke was reported to have masterminded the erosion of popular anti-Iranian policy by exploiting a, quote, break in union solidarity, Mm. which is kind of incredible, right? Like... Totally, yeah. The head of the trade union, uh, like, getting in to be like, oh, yeah, let's fuck up these unionists. They've got too much solidarity. Um, Yeah, getting in the middle of them and then exploiting a fracture in order to undermine, like, an environmental policy position. Pretty remarkable. And then, you know, later when Hawke is elected in 1983, Labour had promised to ban uranium mining. Wow. Uh, It was one of their election promises, and then when he got elected, they did not do it. Uh, Something about aliens? (laughs) I just put aliens, bro, in your notes. That's all. That was the whole thing. Okay. That's fine. Okay, I thought maybe there was going to be something about... Uh, aliens and uranium mining <laughs> which well i would have genuinely been un- interested to hear but <laughs> um, unfortunately you cut off the second half of my notes about rendlesham forest then i guess i'll never know you'll I never mean, know you do have another 90 seconds coming <laughs> yeah. up i could give you a third 90 seconds if you want nah it's fine you know i've got three conspiracy breaks here and you only prepared two so you know <laughs> i've tried true. to be accommodated that's true all right please continue <laughs> I will. So, you know, I'll continue with this little section, which is about Bob Hawke undermining unions. So one of the other things that Coventry outlines is that, you know, Hawke, in his informing to U.S. diplomats, uh, informed the U.S. ambassador to Australia about industrial relations disputes with United States Mm. multinational corporations in Australia, a notable one being the Ford Motor Company, who, you know, oh, yeah, they're such a great... Ford is so cool because he invented production lines and it made production of cars really really cheap but then also he basically invented like really really shit jobs where you do the same soul-rendingly 
pointless specific task over and over again and you know not paying those workers very well i know Mm -hmm. early on it was like oh all the ford workers get a car it wasn't like that in australia in the 70s um and uh so yeah so hawk literally like warned the u.s ambassador uh about companies in australia that could potentially be targeted by unions and activists and intervened in industrial disputes in order to get favorable outcomes for u.s companies Mm -hmm. so the ford motor company for example the way that that was resolved workers did end up getting i think a small pay rise but nothing close to what they wanted or what they deserved which would be a pay rise in accordance to the exact amount of profit that the company was making but whatever uh here's a quote from the coventry article which is pretty illustrative Hawk forewarned diplomats on another occasion that if the left wing of the ACTU becomes more influential, his political survival could require him to adjust his own rhetoric to the prevailing line. Mm, and that's such a good illustration of what you were saying before about this like personal threat about Bob Hawke being like, you know, Van's image of him as this like staunch laborite unionist, blah blah blah. Yeah. And like this is him being like, well, I'm not really a lefty, but if the lefties get louder. I'm going to have to be a lefty, so just heads up about that. Um, Yeah. Yeah. But don't worry, I'm still your boy. Yeah. That's what he's saying to the states. I may need to look like I'm a bit more radical than I am, but, like, don't worry. I'm just talking shit to the people. You guys, you got the real Bob. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty fucking revealing stuff. Mm. Uh, Coventry himself, in that interview, kind of, like, one of the hosts tries to suggest that Hawk is essentially like doesn't believe any of the stuff that sure. he's saying in public and Coventry disagrees with that. He characterizes Hawk as being I think he said um oh I he's think that he was genuinely interested in the work. Uh like you know <laughs> it's funny. not that he Yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. Which but is, like, you know, that very makes sense diplomatic. to me. It's, he didn't join the Liberal Party. No, and like you know I I, I guess I want to make it clear that I'm, you know, my analysis here is not that Hawk is a faceless, uh, you know, pragmatist with absolutely no ideological, sure, uh, uh, anything to him. Or, yeah, yeah. What's the word? I'm Underpinning? No, no principles. No, you know, not with no, right, You know, he's right. not a bloke with no principles. But he is very, very malleable to whatever the prevailing political you know in his in 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 the words of this diplomat his own the the prevailing line he's you know he's willing to bend in order to maintain political power and that's Mm -hmm. important the last little uh story that i wanted to touch on in in terms of uh, like a specific incident of hawk undermining union power uh you know in 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 a particular instance is this funny story about frank sinatra which um you know this is one of the other things about being a relatively someone who got into politics and political history relatively recently is that things come up that are supposed to be like famous stories within Australian politics. And you're like, I've never heard of this. I don't think anyone that I know has ever heard about Mm. this, but like historians are like, Oh, you know, the well known story of Frank Sinatra and Bob Hawke. And I believe him that it is well known. It's just that I'm new to the, you know, Sure. I mentioned it to Holly, and she was like, oh, yeah, I remember something about that. And I think it's been featured in a movie or something. But anyway, I'd never heard this story. It's a funny one. Frank Sinatra comes to Australia. Frank Sinatra is a massive piece of shit. This is 
known. Frank Sinatra says some deeply misogynist shit to a couple of Australian female journalists. Those journalists go back to their union and say, Hey, Frank Sinatra was a huge dick to me today. What can we do to him? And the Australian Journalist Union, uh, I don't know if it was the MEAA in those days or something else, but anyway, they call up the union who, you know, runs the, the, the airline unions, airline workers unions. And they say, yeah, we need to fuck up Frank Sinatra. Do us a favor. He can't travel on planes in Australia. <laughs> How do you feel about this? The airline workers union is like, yo, you're a union. I'm a union. I got your back. That is literally Sinatra, what solidarity means. Fuck that guy. Fuck Frank Sinatra. When he's not doing it his way, it's the union way or the highway. And essentially, Frank Sinatra isn't able to fly into state within Australia, and he also can't leave the country because, like, baggage handlers won't load his luggage. People won't, uh, you know, they're refusing to check his tickets. Uh, and so Frank Sinatra's in a bit of a jam. Now, the kind of publicly understood version of this story is, and this is on, you know, basically the, the, the journos union is demanding an apology from, from Sinatra. So that's what they want. Mm-hmm. And so the public version of the story is that Hawke, as head of the ACTU, steps in. He and Frank sit down and they start slamming shots of presumably whiskey and, you know, undergo this uh, boozy negotiation session. And then he walks out having achieved, mm-hmm. you know, a diplomatic solution that everyone's happy with. Uh, when in fact, sure. what the story was, was okay. that Hawke immediately capitulated behind the scenes, like spoke to Sinatra's people and was like, oh yeah, sorry, this union is way out of line. No apology necessary. He goes and like basically has a bit of a party with Sinatra's entourage without Sinatra himself. And then Hmm. comes out with this, like, uh, what do they call this? Like this joint statement of regret. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, which does not constitute an apology at all. And then Sinatra leaves the country. And so there's, the, you know, this is an example of, you know, in the article, Coventry looking at the cables, comparing, you know, what is being said and done behind the scenes mm-hmm. to what the public image of Hawk is. And the public image is, is of this guy who stood up to the unions, but was like a good enough bloke that he could rap with Sinatra because he was just that cool of a guy. Mm-hmm. And, such a good dip, you know, such a good political operator. He could get a good outcome for everyone. When in fact, what he did was just like throw the unions under the bus at the drop of a fucking hat, partied and got soused, and then you know claimed it as like a public relations victory. I think it's a great example of what these these this article and these cables reveal about Hawk. But also in a broader sense, it, it represents. Uh, Hawke's kind of softening of Australian political attitudes towards the states. So, you know, it's this kind of collaborative relationship. Mm. Uh, and like I said, you know, this this kind of is a precursor to what he would do when he became prime minister, which was essentially make uh, being pro-US a bipartisan political position in Australia. Um, I watched Johnny English recently in that, like, um, it's... Uh, what- Why? <laughs> It's it's quite good. We also watched I the uh, third one, thinking it was the second one. It was also fine. Um, but th- there's an extended scene where he like pretends to fight someone. There's like a door that's partially open, and he's like choking himself and like 
classic like, Rowan Atkinson, classic Ro- Mr. Bean business. Yeah, um, yeah. But that's kind of what Bob Hawke did. He was like, "Don't worry, guys. I'll deal with Frank Sinatra." And he like leaves the door open, and he's like, "Look, look, look, look! Drinking whiskey. Oh, listen here, Frankie. Who I'm gonna really teach you a lesson about unions." And then he came out later, and he was like, "Don't worry, guys. We got him." That's exactly right. You have deployed Johnny English perfectly within this conversation. Thank you. <laughs> I yeah, you hit the nail on the head. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, so moving on again, not an economist, but mm-hmm. uh, here mm-hmm. we go. Nevertheless, so post-war Australian economic policy is Keynesian. Uh, noon, ten seconds. Keynesianism. Uh, if you give people money, they will spend more money, and that's good for the economy. Yeah, uh, a government intervention, pro-government intervention. Uh, is the other key pillar there, right? Yep. Um, and government and intervention could be like hiring people to work for the government or could be setting minimum wage or could be welfare or could be tax cuts, potentially. All of those things uh, might count yeah. as... Yeah. Doing stuff to make the economy better. As opposed GDP to... Gober. Yeah, as opposed to hands off, don't do anything. If you touch the market, it will collapse. Uh, which is... Mm-hmm something closer to uh, contemporary economic policy. Um, so Australian economic policy in post-war period is Keynesian, Keynesian uh, and there's a policy of full employment, um, which is what it sounds like. Everyone gets a job, even you. Um, actual, actual employment, like unemployment, was still at like a couple of percent, though, right? It was. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. They didn't achieve full employment. But they were aiming for full employment. They were yep. aiming for full employment. That was yep. uh, that was Australian government uh, economic policy. Uh, but then in the mid-70s, you have this basically global economic downturn. There's an oil crisis. There's a recession. You get stagflation, which is uh, <laughs> stagnation and inflation mm-hmm. at the same time. Economic mm-hmm. stagnation in a general sense and inflation when it comes to prices of stuff. Star- and then uh, this is the kind of the beginning of the turn towards neoliberalism. Globally speaking, but specifically in an Australian context as well. Uh, and this isn't really relevant to anything, but um, I was reading uh, Van Batten before, as you may have noted mm-hmm. when I was quoting her, and then I went on a bit of a Van Batten rabbit hole, and um, she wrote this article about how, like, sort of acknowledging that Labour brought neoliberalism to Australia, which is one of the other kind of key narratives here that we're going to touch on. Uh, and they just had this line in it, which is too good to, for me to not to repeat. Quote, Spilt milk, the neoliberal project is. The whole country has had milk lapping at its ankles for some time. <laughs> so many, so many issues that spilt milk, the neoliberal project is. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I just talk like all those working class guys. Man, there are um, so many other, like, I literally had... Like five paragraphs from this article, copied and pasted into my notes because this it's so funny. Like leaving aside how badly it's written, and it is very milk lapping at its angles. (laughs) (laughs) But the just the like the you know even at my basic level, I can understand how terrible her economic and historical analysis is. Anyway, I cut the rest of those quotes, but that's the highlight. That's the best line. So yeah. Anyway, thanks. 
So according to Coventry, Bob Hawke genuinely believed that strong wage gains by unions were causing mm. inflation. And so reining in union power was basically economically necessary to save Australia. You know, we've got inflation. What are we going to do about it? Keynesian responses to the problem don't seem to be helping. The so, only thing that we can do is destroy the unions. It's literally the only option we have left. And I said, according to Coventry, I mean, he backs this up with evidence. Yes. That, yes. you know, Hawke genuinely believed this. You know, he was like, I'm in a leadership position in the country. I need to do something about this. I need to do something about it. And what I'm going to do about it is, <laughs> is we need to, well, you know, didn't set out to destroy the unions, but definitely to rein in their power to ask for wage increases. Basically, right. yeah, wages are too high. You know, that's why the economy's fucked. That's not essentially the key thing that unions do or anything. Like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. So uh, here's another quote. The cables shed light on Hawke's change of mind, which began in 1974. By the end of the decade, he believed the maintenance of full employment was secondary to controlling inflation, that wage restraint was pivotal to the inflation fight, and that tripartism was needed to enact macroeconomic reforms. There's a bit of jargon in there. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, you know, the key uh, thing to understand is that essentially Hawke starts the 70s as somebody you know as a keynesian who believes in uh you know government intervention and ends it as somebody who believes that unions need to have their bargaining power reined in because it's killing the economy and the way to get there and fix the economy is tripartism so that's mm -hmm. a term that describes collaboration between you know the three pillars of power within uh society labor the state and capital or business. Also, the state is business. <clears throat> so tripartism, uh, also known as corporatism or class collaboration, depending on who you ask, is, uh, you know, Bob Hawke's like, basically, we need to bring everybody together in a room. And we, need to, we, we need to fucking hammer out an agreement to make sure that the economy is cool again. Mm -hmm. And so, and, and this is, you know, th this eventually takes the form of the Accords, which I'll get into in, in a sec. But so the cables that Coventry references suggest that this idea, tripartism, bringing together labor, the state, and capital, uh, that this idea was at the very least encouraged in Hawke, if not outright planted mm, in Hawke mm -hmm. by United States diplomats in the mid-70s. This is, for me, mm. the most interesting thing in these cables. Totally. Like, yeah, yeah, I agree. Because this yeah, was his uh, brand, right? This is like what he is known for as PM, basically. He worked on it outside of his, the PM ship for five years or something, yep. got elected, yep. and then he was like, oh, what a good idea. Someone from the ACTU sent this to me. Uh, what a good idea. Whoever came up with this <laughs> is a genius. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and, and this is kind of uh, at the center of the story here about how Hawke changed the political and economic direction that Australia took. Obviously, there's other forces at play here. There's global economic forces. There's many other players, you know, domestically within the Australian political scene. But Hawke is central to this. And, you know, Coventry do doesn't go anywhere near as far as saying that the, U the like this was the United States' idea. Um, but he says, I think that the, the most that flood media could draw him on this was 
the U.S. was at very least keen <laughs> on this. Because um, mm-hmm. this does reflect yeah. what was happening in, in, with labor relations in the U.S. at the time as well. Tripartism was kind of already established there, I believe, at around this time. Well, that's kind of what the New Deal was, wasn't it? Uh, sure. I, I think the New Deal, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's interesting that he, he, he wasn't being drawn on that, as you put it, on Flood, because, yeah, I think that he in this article seems fairly direct about being like, I don't know. He's like, the cable said, well, we told him he should do this and he seems to be running with it. And then like yeah. the rest of his career is based around bringing it in. But it's like, how, um, to what extent was it really that conversation that did that? Or like, right. How right. much lean was know, there or whatever, you know? Yeah. You know, that, that's kind of the most, as a historian, right. For Coventry, that's a cable that represents a bit of hard evidence for not only just like direct influence by the states, mm. but also you know the, this Huge is kind influence. of a, Huge yeah the, the, yeah and the, the overarching kind of uh, economic movement and thinking you know in the states and across the world, and that's obviously going to have you know a huge amount of influence on the thinking of someone like Hawke. Um. So, you know, whether or not we can say the U.S. fucking planted that idea, you know, Coventry definitely wouldn't say that we could go that far. Um, But, you know, it's clearly important in the development of this idea. So, yeah, as you mentioned, Noon, the idea of, like, tripartism is something that Hawke had been developing for a while. And, in fact, while he's president of the ACTU in 74, he signs the Kirribilli Accord with Whitlam, different from, again, from the main accords, but this was the ACTU voluntarily pledging wage restraint. This didn't really kind of come into, you know, have much of an effect at the mm-hmm. time. It was a bit like, I think, preemptive, but it laid the groundwork for the Accords Accords, which um, listeners may be familiar with. So Hawke is elected prime minister in 1983, and he signs the Prices and Income Accords at, at that year, the beginning of his term, and they mm-hmm. last up until 96 when they get abolished under John Howard. Um, but so the Accords were, you know, they basically demolished union power. They they all but completely removed the right to strike, except under a, a very specific set of circumstances, mm-hmm. which have only tightened under successive both Labour and Liberal governments. So, you know, if you want to trace the, f- like, the uh the knee capping of union power uh in you know in contemporary Australia back to a specific point, it's the signing of the Accords. This happens under Hawke in eighty three. This is an idea that that has been bubbling for a while and, you know, was at the very least encouraged by the US, United States diplomats mm-hmm. that he was in contact with. So the Accords, you know, there was this agreement where, you know, the union essentially unions were like, okay, you know, via the ACTU uh, were essentially like, okay, we, you know, we'll accept some restraints on our uh, power to strike, to bargain, uh, and in return, uh, we'll get a couple of small, you know, pre-agreed upon pay rises mm-hmm. over the next couple of years. The government agrees to control inflation, so the- theoretically those wages go further, and uh, right. the government is also like, you know, we'll bring in what's called the social wage and that, you know, that's a strong social safety net, Medicare being the kind of flagship policy here. A universal healthcare, you know, 
is first kind of established under Whitlam. No, it's called Medibank at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Medicare, as it kind of, you know, the name and as it exists today, is brought in as part of the Accords as well. Me- so, you know. Interesting. We like Medicare. Medicare Totally, cool. yeah. The reality of the situation was that, of course, wages stagnated, working conditions deteriorated, and then the union movement rapidly, rapidly deflates. So... In 1986, union density, Australia-wide, 45%. Mm-hmm. 45% of workers are in their union in 1986. In 2020, it's 14%, and it's even lower now. Rip. And that's, you know, that it tells you a lot about mm-hmm. how, you know, the Overton window in this country has shifted so far to the right. We once had this extremely powerful... Uh, worker-led movement which could do stuff like trap Frank Sinatra in the country yep. uh, on behalf of, like, another union as well. It's like, you know, that was solidarity, cross-union solidarity. Mm-hmm. You know, and these days... I also think, I don't know, that... I guess there's this general narrative that, like, capitalism slowly makes things better or whatever like yeah sure things are bad but look how much better it is than back then and everyone has an iphone and blah 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 and but the reason that we have low union density isn't because everyone's like oh well things are fine i guess i don't need any assistance with my work it's because the head guy of the union movement was like uh, I'm going to try and make sure everyone can't do the same stuff that we've been doing. Like, it was internal That has been working and sabotage. getting enormous gains for you, for workers yeah, for yeah. decades. Uh, but but it was, like, imposed in this top-down way Yeah, that, like, uh, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure any of our listeners probably really buy that line that I just said before, but, like, I don't know. Like, you might hope that lower union density is correlated with more satisfaction at work or whatever, but no, of course the opposite with is true. People not seeing the fucking point in being part of a union and paying dues because why pay literally... a union dues when you could buy a computer game? Yeah, higher wages <laughs> well, can buy many computer games. Partially that, or that you know that you, like what can unions offer? What can they promise? Yeah, now? yeah, right. You know, it's not much because they've had all of their power taken away. Mm. Right in the seventies, they're like, hey, say, check it out. You're literally getting paid more now than any point in history for this job. And that's because of what we've been able to accomplish, you know, in solidarity with other mm-hmm. workers. Mm-hmm. And now it's like ten percent off at Guzman and Gomez if you know f- for the first two weeks of your membership. Mm-hmm. Anyway Which isn't to say uh, unions are bad, still join your union. Go join your union and radicalize them. I'm a part of my shitty union, and you should be too. Uh, But yeah, look, uh, if if you're interested in understanding a bit more about, uh, you know, the introduction of neoliberalism in Australia and the fact that it was brought in by a nominally left, nominally worker party, as opposed to everywhere else in the world where it was brought in by right-wing parties, Mm -hmm. which, hmm, Hmm. I wonder if maybe that says something about whether or not Labour was a left-wing party in... 80s, but whatever. If you want to know more about that, you should check out the work of a historian called Elizabeth Humphreys. She wrote a book called How Labour Built Neoliberalism, which I have not read, but I have listened to several hours of podcast with her about the book, which mm-hmm. is, I would say, better than reading the book. But, you know, there's the option to read it there as well. You should, like, mm-hmm. And, yeah. 
You should listen. She's, she she had a really good appearance on um, the Living the Dream podcast, which is a great podcast. Everyone should check it out. Anyway, but yeah, uh, she kind of goes into a lot more detail about, uh, you know, how Labour built neoliberalism is in the name Noon. Yep. You got 90 seconds on the clock. Oh, God. Uh, Your time starts. All right now okay so we're all agreed that uh jfk was shot by at least three gunmen in 1963 that was a joke <laughs> but i let it breathe more and i have to move on fast forward five years it's 1968 his brother bobby kennedy has just won the democratic primaries meaning he will be their presidential candidate and probably win the election bobby kennedy he gives a speech at the ambassador hotel he's walking out of the hotel when he's shot multiple times by handgun and dies the next day arrested at the scene is a man named sehan sehan who was convicted of murder and sentenced to death which is changed later to a life sentence and he basically spent all of his free time being a Bobby Kennedy for supporting Israel and hung out at a gun range and then that day got super drunk and then headed to the campaign headquarters and then drank a big pot of coffee big pot of coffee and then shot Kennedy and there are two main conspiracies uh, one is that the CIA did this to stop Bobby Kennedy becoming president because then he would be privileged to the information that the CIA really did kill his brother JFK and then he would get mad about it and the other is that Sirhan Sirhan was brainwashed by the Rosicrucians who were working for the Soviets that's not a joke there was a lot of legitimately, legitimately sus shit uh, a lot of details about the casings of the guns and how many bullets were fired and whatever but the biggest thing was the wounds on his head and the powder in his jacket indicated he was absolutely shot from a distance of a few inches but everyone agrees Sirhan was shot from a several feet away and there are photos of the walls with the bullet holes in them and the cops came and they found the bullets and they removed the wall from the hotel it's not a joke it really happened and then when the uh, journalists asked about it they said it was marked unimportant and destroyed just a few weeks after the murder as for the rosicrucians there's sort of a, a zoolander relax kind of thing and there was self-hypnosis techniques uh and a government hypnotist said that he was the most hypnotizable person that he'd ever met and if you touch his elbow he stands and shoots like he's at a go- all right there you go again Got through most of my notes, three quarters. So, you know, th- there you go. If you want the 10-hour version of that, listen to Slow Burn. Which uh, is... No, the RFK tape. Slow Burn is also oh! really good. That one's about uh, Watergate and is less fanciful. I think, oh yeah, Slow Burn has a few seasons. Yeah. The Watergate one's good. The Bill Clinton one is like, eh, you yeah, know, it's all right. But then Confronting I think apparently... and unpleasant. Yeah, I think they recently did one about the Iraq War, which I've heard very bad things about. Um, cool. Well, listen I can to the first recommend season. blowback though. But none of these are the podcasts which the are RFK to say, tapes. Which is RFK tapes, yeah, yeah, which, which are, is it's a good, it's a good series. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is some really um, upsettingly compelling evidence. It is for upsetting how compelling shit. Yeah, and it's not that. These specific ones are true. Just like man, that is sus as fuck. Anyway, I've gone way over. That's you know, That's, you kept uh, talking I mean, about it. Please I initiated. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I didn't want to cut into your ninety seconds. <laughs> I appreciate um, that. Drank a big pot of coffee and then shot Kennedy is a good sentence, by the way. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I appreciated that. It's true. <laughs> but the cop yeah. was and given to him by girl in a polka dot dress. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so foreign policy briefly. Um, so you know, as I've been sort of hinting at. Hawk kind of represented a departure from, you know, uh, existing Australian foreign policy at the time being so pro, you know, pro-United States no matter what. So one of the things that he did, which was super cooked, uh, that these cables reveal is that he voluntarily stepped in to resolve union disputes mm-hmm. at United States military installations in Australia, which I would describe as very cool a very cool thing for the leader of the union movement to do do you you know with that was it australian unionists at the u.s army base 
Yeah, yeah. So it's like like, cons- like construction. Well, workers and- yeah. I don't know exactly what the role. Like I, I don't know uh, anything, almost anything about the mm-hmm. uh, case as other than what is talked about in the article. Okay. But basically, it's like uh, it has a name. It's a well-known military installation. Again, it's this pine is pine gap. No, no, it's not pine gap. It's in the north. The top of my head. And it was it was like an an important uh, installation for sending messages through for one reason or another. It's going to be important if like nuclear war kicked off, okay. like that would be how information would reach Australia or right, something. Right. Okay. Yeah, but I yeah. don't know. Look, that could be a deep dive for another time. All right. That's but fine. at the end of the day, you know, Hawk intervenes on the side of the U.S. in order to cool things down. You know, not even after being asked. He's just like, yeah. We'll do that. Um, to so, kind of here's a good quote from the Coventry article, which sums up, I think, you know, Hawke's kind of position on on the states publicly. As one cable records, Hawke projected as a, a desire for quote an independent, non-aligned Australia. Privately, he explained to diplomats that he wanted to expand ANZUS, the Australian, New Zealand, and United States like military treaty that they had, beyond a quote purely defensive military alliance gross they and the and then uh the the quote goes on uh the coventry article quote goes on they reasoned that this duality was part of a quote tactical move to gain yeah. left-wing support for parliamentary pre-selection although not a successful one so That's, he's publicly just like because not aligned in the context of the cold war means you're not on either the side of the soviets or the u.s yeah, and which obviously there's like, you know, so the, the, there's Cold War stuff, there's Reds Under the Bed's fears, and there's like accusations, even of Hawke in his early career as being like a communist, essentially. Yeah. Uh, but also you got to remember, this is around the time of Vietnam. And so anti-US uh, sentiment and sentiment against US I interventionism see, I see. in global politics is so, pretty high. You know, Aussie, our Aussie boys are also going over there. And, you know, dying face down in the muck, to coin a phrase. Right, so, so non-aligned might have meant, like, well, we don't want the Vietnam War to keep going, but we're not communists. Yeah, essentially, what, you know, he he's saying publicly, look, I'm not going to follow the United States into just any conflict that they kick off, okay? You know? And then behind doors, look he's all like... this stuff rationally. He's like, I will make follow this you into any conflict. defensive treaty even more <laughs> binding on us? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and the other thing that Coventry, that Coventry uh, singles out uh, in his article, which I thought was interesting, is Hawke's position on Israel and the influence that has. So Hawke was super pro-Israel before he became prime minister and actually clashed with Whitlam on it. And the Whitlam government was generally, it had what it called, quote, an even-handed stance mm-hmm. on Israel and Palestine, which like, you know, probably just upset a lot of people in both directions, but is definitely nowhere near the kind of uh, pro-Israel, mm-hmm. anti-Palestine rhetoric that is bipartisan in, in Australian politics mm-hmm. today. So Whitlam saw Hawke's support out of Israel as being just politically expedient for him because Melbourne has a really big Jewish population. That was very important to Hawke, you know, electorally at a personal level. But also the Israel lobby is very important uh, was very important financially to Labour at the time. Here's a quote from the Coventry article. The 
The exact value pro-Israel donors contributed to labor is unclear, but could have been as much as, quote, a fifth of the total fund during the years of the Whitlam government. So Hawke, as president of labor, is like keeping an eye on the donors and being like, Mm -hmm. you know, towing certain political lines in order to make sure that the cash keeps flowing. And there's also this weird sort of footnote about him... Yeah. engineering the expulsion of pro-arab members of young labor um, yeah which was an interesting Branch story to in me. young labor when you're the head of the actu is a really long game that's like <laughs> yeah. three elections from now i don't want them being in the opposite faction like yeah. That, yeah. that's you know there it is um yeah so i mean i don't i'm and again it's like this is one of my, amongst many influences and and causes but as 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 i say it's like today there's basically bipartisan political success, consensus on like unwavering support for israel mm, mm-hmm. no criticism allowed and you know very and no political support for palestine and you know it's hard not to see Hawk here as the kind of uh, turning point, really, um, for that to become a mainstream totally. view uh, or a bipartisan view. Mm, you know, obviously, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, reactionary conservative yeah, governments sure. uh, yep. are going to take that position, but for Labour to do it, you know, we see here again the Hawk being kind of uh, an early adopter <laughs> of all of these like center right yeah. positions. Yeah. Um, you know, not necessarily being the person who causes it, but definitely mm-hmm. being, you know, at the tip of the fucking spear when it comes to this stuff. Uh, and so, yeah, the other thing that we've been sort of the, the through line that we've been tracing through this noon is, you know, the idea of, of Hawke basically is this ambitious, egotistical political pragmatist who is very happy to say one thing to the unions, one thing to the Australian public, uh, and a very different thing to uh united states diplomats which you know it seems like those are the people he was really being honest with because he was literally he would literally say to them like i am happy to change my political position in order to you know my public like, facing political position in order to strengthen my actual political position yeah like you know i'm happy to change my views in order to strengthen my political position um so you know it's like it's very easy to read this the these these adoptions of pro United States and pro kind of capital positions as, you know, expediency over ideology. Um, and there's a really good example of this in the article, mm. which details that the cables show that Hawke at one point was considering suggesting the formation of a quote national government which is something that uh the uk has done a couple of times where essentially the major parties like amalgamate into one big uh government uh you know one big bipartisan government in times of crisis i think they did it world war ii world war ii yeah Yeah. exactly so i think churchill's government was and he was like stagflation it's a we need to we need that literally be baby. the liberal party. Yeah. Because but essentially and here's his and, and this is why, you know, I mean like sure on the surface he might have been like, yeah, it's a national economic crisis, we need a national government. Uh and who better to lead that then? This guy. You know. Old Bobby Hawk. Yeah. I was going 
trying to come up with some variation of um, who's got two thumbs and would be the perfect leader of a new national government. Uh, but the article, Coventry's article has a quote at the time from Rupert Murdoch. Quote, he sees the ALP, and talking about Hawke, quote, he sees the ALP going down to defeat and does not want to board the sinking ship. So mm. literally he's like climbed his way to the top of the lib- of the Labour Party and is like, like, oh, sweet. I'm, j- I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a bee's dick away from being fucking prime minister and then Labour Party. Oh shit, we're going to lose the elections. The he's like, okay, I'm going to invent a whole new government so that I can be prime <laughs> minister. Yeah. Which is, I don't know, just very, I think it's a very telling story. Of course, this didn't come to pass, but. Um, and also, this is less important, but you know that Ocker thing that Van Batten loves so much. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. he's just fuck. Oh, he loves to loves to be down the track and bet on the doggies or whatever. Mm, the fuck. Smoke cigarettes in his brill cream. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. He loves to have a foamy beer scum around his brill cre- brill creamed cigarette tr- ashtray. Okay, so there's this there's this quote from the Coventry article, which I think also really undermines that image as well. So, uh, and, so, and so he's talking about U.S. diplomats' attitude to Hawke. And he says, to them, Hawke was a, quote, experienced chameleon who had, quote, successfully played down his academic record mm. and bookish background. Like, you know who that reminds me of is mm. fucking Barnaby Joyce. Yeah. Um, his whole persona is this, like, Oh, dinky die. I've got cattle. Look at me. I'm holding a brand new shovel near a truck. Um, but oh, he's an accountant. I, this is true of any national, almost any national, uh, any uh, nationals politician. Very mm-hmm. true of Matt Canavan. Very true of David Littleproud. Very mm-hmm. true of uh, John Barillaro. Like, all of these, blo- yeah, you're right. It's this classic, oh my God. Man, no, this is okay. Now get now we're getting into the fucking meat of it. Bob Hawke is the originator of the uh, of the true blue dinky dye ochre battle bullshit facade. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, latte sipper. He's a fucking latte sipper. He was a latte sipper all along. He wasn't a beer that scum. Yard cigarette that he sculpted. It was craft beer. Oh, and also, actually, that you know the world record in beer sculling that he holds. It's bullshit. <laughs> I didn't know. He, oh, I didn't know he held oh, a record or that legends. that was claimed. Right. I just thought he drank it one time. <laughs> oh, Which, no, like, like he, you know, that he at one I point can see held the beer sculling world record. But yeah, it's garbage. But he did not. Is that surprising? Okay. No, well. You know, maybe to Van Batten. Uh, I also read another Guardian piece, but just for fucking diversity, from Jeff Sparrow, who. Uh, the, the, but who who was basically the only bit of mainstream media coverage of this article by Coventry that I could find, right. um, and uh, yeah, you know, it's a piece that essentially just sums up what's in the article, kind of like what I'm doing now, but shorter. Uh, but there's a quote from it that I thought uh, summed up the findings of the mm-hmm. article pretty well. Not all of Coventry's evidence is new, but assembled as a package, it deals a blow to the Hawk legend. Everyone loves a larrikin, nobody likes a snitch. That's such a good catchphrase. Everybody loves a larrikin. Nobody likes yeah. a snitch. I think he's really summed up what is kind of the crucial takeaway from this article about Hawk as a person, which is that, you know, he's basically, he's, his legend is that he's a down-to-earth guy you could have a beer with at the pub, and the reality is that he's going to go straight home, call up a U.S. diplomat, and tell him everything that you told him at the pub. That's who Hawk really was. Uh-huh. And that's, yep. you know, 
So, I, you know, like, is there a broader lesson here about not lionizing politicians who rise to the top of, you know, extremely compromised political organizations? Hmm. Yeah, maybe. I'll let you draw your own conclusions. Um, <laughs> I love Adam Bant. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> uh, oh, boy. Oh, jeez. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, you know. He doesn't pretend to own cattle or whatever, but that's true. He is a latte sipper. Um, so I guess to to kind of conclude here, let me read one more quote from uh, the Coventry piece. On its face, there were more informers in labour, the labour movement, and government than in other parts of society. It could be that the coalition parties in business had less need to establish bona fides with the United States. After all, the conservative parties had quote acted to protect the substantial U.S. investment stake in Australia and encouraged access for new U.S. investment. Which, like, yeah, is not surprising to me that the United States cultivated more, like, collaboration and informers right. in the movements that were dangerous to them. Well, it's also to, like, like, you know, oh, why aren't the cops arresting these um, anti-BLM protesters? It- it's because right. it's them. And it's like, well, you don't have to infiltrate business when you're no. a cop. Like, you know, that... Yeah, that's the thing about no, the tripartite... Agree, the tripartism or whatever is, like, yeah. it's actually just labor and then capital twice is who that agreement is between. <laughs> and, like, capital and yeah. capital both voted yes, you know? And then labor was run by Bob Hawke. I don't know, just, yeah, you sort of said this already, and it's kind of been the whole point of the entire episode, but, like, this supposedly left-wing party keeps doing not-left-wing things, and, like, we shouldn't believe the window dressing, or even the history, when the current evidence says they're doing right-wing capitalist shit, and they're less enthusiastically right-wing than the other party, but, like... They're still capitalists, and and they're still there to exploit labor and to facilitate the exploitation of workers by capital. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that's the overarching message here, that even under Whitlam, even by the 70s, you know, the labor movement in Australia had, you know, the Labor Party had been completely captured, you know, Mm. and they ushered in the dismantling of the labor Mm. movement, Mm. uh, you Mm -hmm. know, in attendance with that. And that's what's so so depressing about... Sorry. No, no, go on. about the van quotes that you've been using is like mm. sure i'm like you're welcome to born this guy dying regardless of his political stance i guess but like sure yeah that that i think she honestly wants to help workers and wants to make the world a better place and wants to improve union solidarity and wants all this stuff and even she can't see through the bullshit that the party's spinning or like, you know, maybe especially her, maybe on some level, but like, I think that's really sad that, that this fucking trick works and it's still working 40 years later with the same fucking guy doing the same fucking bullshit, you know, like, I don't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, it's just, I think it puts the lie to that you can have, it puts the line to the idea that if you install someone at the top of the political hierarchy who has staunch values and is going to fight for what is right, that the machine can work in the service of the people. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, it just it can't. It just never does. And Hawk, yeah. Hawk wasn't even that guy in the first place. Right, right. 
you know, Whitlam might have been that guy to a certain extent. But maybe, look what fucking happened to him. And maybe look, that's you know. Maybe that's the conclusion: is that like the progressive dream is that it's labor, capital, and capital. Totally. But the reality is, it's just capital, capital, and capital. Like that's <laughs> that's how it ends up, right? <laughs> well, now it is. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Well, if, if but that's what Bob Hawke did. He took. Yeah. He was in command of the labor movement and was like, yeah. Yes. Yes, we are we are going to happily represent the interests of business and capital. Yeah. Yeah. So look, you know, he he sucked, he made things worse. Uh it wasn't the only reason why things got worse, but he was uh, right in the middle of it and he was a snitch. And he was a fucking snitch. Um and cool. if he was alive, I would tell him bad job, Bob Hawk. Uh and go <laughs> Yeah, I could, hey, stop it. No, stop it, Bob Hawke. Bad Bob Hawke. Bad former Prime Minister. Anyway. Uh, all right. <laughs> let's, wrap this, let's wrap this show I'd up. I'd say that we can probably wrap it up at this stage. Thanks very much for tuning in. I hope you got something out of this episode. Thank you for supporting um, us on Patreon. It's so nice. We love that you guys yeah, like the that, show and like so what nice. we do. Keep watching the skies. I want to believe. And, and so on.